good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well. We are going to start a new equipping class. As many of you know, this morning, uh, the Heart of the Kings. And so hopefully on your way in, you were able to grab one of those booklets. And so the, that'll be the, the booklet we use for the whole 14 weeks. So we'd really encourage you to keep a hold of that, tuck it away in your Bible, and um, bring that back each week. Because um, our plan is not to be printing new ones, as you can imagine, every week. But just um, so if you could keep a hold of it, that would be helpful. But really, the, the prayer and the goal is to take a lot of what we studied and learned last semester in the matters of the heart, if you're in that series, and watch some of that content just fleshed out in case studies and taking a dozen kings, which is what we'll do for the 14 weeks ahead, and just drawing out one defining feature from each of their respective reigns, one defining truth about God revealed through his response to their reigns, and then perhaps a defining need that we should realize in our own hearts and lives that just drives us to the cross, that drives us to the feet of Jesus, that helps us see our need for a redeemer, for a savior, and helps us appreciate the savior that we have in Christ. And so, because there's so much content in some of the stories of these kings, we're going to have to be focused. And so, kind of one defining feature we can draw out of their reigns, one sort of divining truth about the Lord that he's expo revealing through their reigns, and then, okay, what's one kind of big take-home for us that we can pray for the Lord to work out in our own hearts and lives? So, that's the goal and plan for the weeks ahead. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump in. Well, Father, as we consider this morning just the kingship of Saul and the effects of the fear of man in his life and your revealing of your love for a humble kind of obedience and dependence upon you through his reign, we ask that you would humble us, that you would teach us the fear of God, that you would free us from the fear of public opinion, that you would show us our need for the forgiveness that is in Christ and the new heart that is in Christ and the salvation that you give through Christ that gives us peace with you and sets us free from every other fear. And so we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think a great many truths can be gleaned from the life and reign of King Saul. But here's one of them. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I mean, the fear of man will govern the heart of Saul. It'll shape every dimension of his life, his relationship to God, his relationship to people, his relationship to circumstances. I would think if we're self-aware and honest, we can understand it. I know for me, I've struggled with forms of the fear of man for as long as I can remember my whole life. And the effects are vast. Because living to please God and living to please people are two very different streams that flow from two very different springs. 
and they go in two very different directions. And you can't really mix them, and it go well. And so just listen for a minute to these very sobering and tragic words of John chapter 12, verse 42. It says, many of the authorities believed in him, meaning Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, a number of these Jewish authorities listen to Jesus, they're watching what he's doing, and they're thinking, I think this could be the Messiah. This could be the sent one from God. But they weren't willing to confess that. They weren't willing to fully believe and give their life to that. And it says, for fear of public opinion. I mean, can you think of anything more awful? To have the truth about your sin, about Christ's righteousness, about the way of salvation, all of that standing right there before your eyes and yet refuse to believe out of fear of what people will think if you do that. Again, how many of us, when we look back on life, can see all kinds of moments where, whether it's confessing Christ, making Christ known, and we just pull back out of fear of what will people think. Of course, this is in the worst kind. They're not even willing to believe or entrust themselves to him or publicly confess him out of fear. Because the fear of man drives us from the throne of grace. It enslaves us to what people think, to what people will say, to what people will do. It enslaves us to doing the pleasure of people, not seeking the pleasure of God. And I think the life and reign of King Saul is going to animate that truth. It's going to illustrate it. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord is safe. And that's ironic, really, I think, that the fear of man is actually deadly to relationships. That fearing people actually makes it impossible to really love people. Because we'll just be so preoccupied with what people think about us, how people are going to see us, how they're going to treat us, that we're actually incapable of really loving them according to the truth. Because the moment I entered the room, surrounded by people, I'm preoccupied with myself. And so I'm not really free to love them. Not really free to minister God's word to them. Because I'll always be tapering everything by how will they respond? How will they see this? How will they treat me? And that's the life and reign of King Saul. He's going to try to murder David. He's going to try to murder his own son, Jonathan, all out of fear for his reputation, all out of fear for losing the throne. He's going to disobey the clear commandment of God just to avoid losing the support of people. So he thought. And I think that's why his example is so valuable. Because in many ways, we're more like him than not like him. It's easy to read Saul and just put him out there. Like, I can't believe he's that way. I can't believe he would do that. 
But if we really slow down and think about what's going on in his heart, in his life, we go, okay, I get it. I know how that works, how tempting that is. I mean, the Apostle Peter, he's going to deny even knowing Jesus three times. Just an hour after he promised to go to the grave with him. Because he was afraid of what a slave girl would think if he said, yeah, I'm, I'm one of his disciples. I've been with him for three years. I love this guy. It just hits so fast. So today we're going to see the heart of the people revealed, firstly, in their demand for a human king. And then we're going to see the heart of Saul revealed in a specific set of circumstances. And then next week, we'll look at the heart of God revealed in his response to Saul and the true need that God is showing us that we have for a Savior, for a Redeemer. That'll be this week and next week. So there in your notes, you'll see that first major point, the heart of the people revealed. And so turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you would, because that's where Saul's going to become king is in 1 Samuel 10. But actually, if you look back at 1 Samuel 8, we're going to see how first the people are going to demand a king. And God's going to give them a king, but a king after their own heart. He'd be the king that they deserve, the king that they most wanted. But it starts with them sinfully demanding a king. Not that having a king is in and of itself evil, per se, but their reason for one will be very much sinful. First. Uh, Samuel chapter 8 verse 5, behold, they're going to say to Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So Samuel's getting old and coming to an end and his sons that he'd set up as judges around the land are wicked and all the people know this. And so they cannot imagine life without Samuel there. Or what they imagine about life without Samuel there is this is going to go downhill really, really fast. And what they didn't stop to think about is, well, God isn't getting old. God isn't wicked. God will reign over you. God will be your king. God can establish leaders. He was trustworthy. He would rule over them. But they're not thinking about him. He is not the leader they think they need. He's not the king that they think they need. They want to be like the nations. They say it right there in verse 5. We want a king that we can see, that we can hear, that we can touch, that makes us look like the rest of the world. So they wanted a king, point B there, to replace God. Because Samuel's going to object, and then the Lord's going to speak to Samuel in verse 7. Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. In other words, they may not know what they're doing, but God knows what they're doing. They may not know what this means, but God for sure knows what it means. They're rejecting him in favor of man. And though Samuel warned the people, he's going to go on in the verses after and warn them of all the troubles that are going to come by having a human king. 
by having this man rule over them. And here's what they say in verses 19 and 20. No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also may be like all the nations. Which hopefully, if you know the story before this, flies directly in the face of the point of God redeeming Israel. He's going to redeem them to set them apart from the nations in order to be a light to the nations. In other words, what makes them useful to God in the world is not that they're like the nations, but that they're distinct from the nations. And that's important for us to see. That it, there's this danger as Christians are thinking, in order to, to really help people and reflect Christ to the world, we've got to be relevant. And God's saying, well, it's actually the opposite. If you really want to reflect me to the world, you have to be distinctive. You have to be set apart. But that's not what Israel wants. Like, we don't want to be distinctive. We don't want to be set apart. We want to be just like them. And they say, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Because when we slow down to think about it, those are all things that God did for them perfectly. He was a perfect judge to them. He fought their battles. How many battles at this point had God lost? Like how many times had he gone before them and been defeated? I mean, not even close. But to follow in the footsteps of the world, to be like the world, to look like the world, to have what the world has, that's what they wanted. And that's the real sin of their demand, not merely that we would have a king, but a king to replace God. A king to make us like the world. That's where their trouble began. That's where our trouble begins, right? We're like Israel in this regard. We're prone to seek, desire, put trust in human powers, created things. All we have to do is wait for the next election cycle, right? Where we really think that's the real battle. We really think that's where the trouble begins and ends is in political systems, civic leaders, a dozen other circumstantial factors. And that doesn't mean political leaders don't make our lives easier or harder circumstantially. They do. It doesn't mean it's wrong to vote. No, vote. But we should never put our hope in that. We should never think this is the real hope of the church. If the church is going to thrive, it can only thrive in this pleasant kind of political environment when that's just not true across the history of the world. God's people tend to thrive most when they're most distinct, often when they're most persecuted, often when they're most mistreated. That's when the gospel often most flourishes. That's not how these people are thinking. God's not enough. His grace isn't sufficient. His word won't do. We'd rather have the creature rule us rather than the creator rule us. And we just keep looking for the next little savior to appear. Because in some ways we're hardwired to seek saviors. We are savior seekers. We're hardwired to revere, to fear. 
the only question is who? Who do we fear? Who do we trust? Who do we bank on? Knowing that the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. But God is going to give them a king, and he's going to give them their point C, the king that they deserve, because they're going to reject God and demand a human king. And in 1 Samuel 8, 22, the Lord is going to announce that he's going to give them the king that they want. And in part, this is going to be a kind of act of discipline. But at the same time, this is going to be a foreordained decision of God in redemptive history. That this sort of foolish rejection of God as king, their sinful desire for a king of their own nature is going to be the backdrop against which God's going to anoint a king and create a kingdom. And all of that is going to be to establish a type of Christ, a type of Christ's kingdom. Because we'll see the issue isn't going to be, it's wrong to have a king. It's which king are you going to have? And for what purpose and to what end? And so even though this is a sinful request from the people, God providentially is ordaining these events in order to give them a king, firstly, that they deserve. But then in contrast to a king after his own heart, David, who's going to provide now a type of Christ and his kingdom to come. And so God's working within all the little desires of people to still bring about his purposes. So 1 Samuel 9, 2, we learn that Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here's the one that's going to be selected first. He looked good. He was physically impressive. His appearance was persuasive. Where people are going to look at him and go, yeah, this is, this is the man. He's taller, better looking, more impressive. And I think just as importantly, he's going to make us look good to the world. This guy is our king. And notice the contrast. Jesus comes as a very different king, doesn't he? Remember how Isaiah put it, there was, in Isaiah 53, there was, there was nothing about his appearance that was attractive to us, that would cause us to desire him. There was nothing about him that was impressive. There was no way you were going to be drawn to Jesus because it made you look good in the world. But the king God's going to give them first is one that fits their desire. And so the Lord's going to orchestrate all these events of 1 Samuel 9 to bring Saul to Samuel, who's then going to anoint Saul king in chapter 10, verse 1. And in those early days, Saul's going to show a lot of promise. 1 Samuel 10, verse 9, look at that. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And it says the Spirit of God rushed upon him. A chapter later, you can turn over to chapter 11, verse 6. They're about to go to war with the Ammonites, and it says the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. He's going to lead them in a military victory over the Ammonites, and in chapter 11, verse 13, even Saul's going to proclaim, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. 
So in these early moments of his reign, you're going to see all these moments of promise. He's going to joyfully worship the Lord at the end of chapter 11, verse 15. So it starts well. He's tall. He's handsome. He's a warrior. He just defeated their enemies in battle. I mean, he's the man. And everybody's thinking, man, this is working out great. This, this is what we wanted. See, we were right to ask for this. But then in the chapters ahead, the heart of Saul is going to be revealed. Because there's nothing like time and circumstances and pressures and moments where things seem desperate to really test character, to really show what kind of heart do I have. And so that second major section in your notes, the heart of Saul revealed. We're in chapter 12. The time's going to come where Samuel is going to start to step aside as judge of Israel. And listen to some of his final words in, excuse me, 1 Samuel 12, verses 23 and 24. It says, Moreover, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider the great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Firstly, I love how Samuel considers it a sin to not pray for the people. What a great mark of a leader. Samuel, what's your first job? My first job is to pray. And even as elders, as pastors, as leaders, we should go, okay, my first responsibility as a leader of God's people is to pray, to be a person of prayer. So no matter how wrong their demand for a king is, no matter what this means about their rejection of God, Samuel's like, I'm not going to quit praying for you. He loves them. He's going to instruct them in what he says, the good and right way. And his words are going to set the stage for all these chapters to come. Humble fear of the Lord, faithful service to the Lord, a whole heart devoted to the Lord. That's what the Lord is seeking from them. Saying, so as I exit stage left, Samuel's like, just remember, that's what God wants. That's what he's after. It's what he seeks from Saul. And those are the very things Saul will not give. And so we'll look at two particular events in the reign of Saul that's going to bring this to light. One is going to be in chapter 13 and the other in chapter 15. Two events, two moments that really shine the light on what's inside him. And one is going to be a sinful action, a false sacrifice. The second will be a sinful inaction, a refusal to sacrifice. And so it's amazing how we can go wrong in two different directions. And so the first event, this sinful action of false sacrifice, this is going to be about two years into his reign. So for two years, everybody's thinking, hey, this is going great. Even Saul's thinking, this is going great. So turn over to 1 Samuel 13. 
The Lord's going to give victory over a Philistine garrison to, to Jonathan, Saul's son, in verse 3. And because of that, the Philistines are going to muster this great army in verse 5. And begin to march upon Israel. The people followed Saul at Gilgal in verse 7, but it says they were terrified. So the people are gathering to Saul at Gilgal. This great army of Philistines has gathered, and all the people are terrified, which means, okay, it's a great time for prayer. This is a great time for worship. This is a great time for humble sacrifice. They've actually been here before where Saul or Samuel rather prayed and remember God routed the Philistines. Similar situation. Great time to pray, to worship, to be humble, to rely on the Lord, not on men. And here Saul is waiting for Samuel to come. Look down at verse 8. And he, meaning Saul, waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Here's the moment of testing. Samuel says, I'll be there in seven days. Samuel hadn't come. The people are terrified. They're starting to scatter. And now what's Saul going to do? Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me. And the peace offerings. Key statement. And he offered the burnt offering. Or what tribe's he from? Is he a Levite? What tribe's he from? Benjamites. Any, any high priests come out of Benjamin? Or other priests? Now that harkens back to like the book of Judges when they were just throwing up priests all over the place from all kinds of tribes and doing all kinds of things. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt sacrifice, behold, Samuel came. The perfect timing of God. Due to their fear and impatience, the people start to leave. Saul panics. And so here he is, Saul, who's not a priest, offers this sacrifice, which he had no right to do because he fears man and not God. Because he's afraid of losing the support of people. And he's not afraid of losing the support of the Lord. As if sacrifices were just a tool to be used to get soldiers to stay with him, to curry favor with the people. In other words, God had delayed Samuel just long enough to expose Saul's heart. And yet brought Samuel just soon enough to see what came out of Saul's heart in that vacuum. Does God know how to do that in our lives? How to delay just long enough in deliverance to really draw out what's in us and yet to bring eyewitnesses at just the right moment to see it? That's what happens here, just the wisdom of God, the providence of God. So if you ever wonder why God delays in bringing the deliverance he promises, this is one reason. It's not the only reason, but it's one. To expose us, to test us, to teach our faith, to try our faith, to grow our faith, to help us see, do we fear God or do we fear man? Do we revere Christ in his name or 
Do we revere ourselves and our own names? We usually don't know how to answer that right till it all hits the fan. Verse 10, and Saul went out to meet him, meaning Samuel, and to greet him. Verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So you get the sense in that that Saul kind of knows this wasn't a good idea. But yet he's going to speak and interact with Samuel as if everything is just fine. He seems oblivious. I think he was, there's something in the conscience panged him. Otherwise he wouldn't be saying all that. And yet that pang in conscience, he just shoved that thing down. And now I'm just going to speak as if I'm oblivious to this sin. The sin of playing priest. The sin of irreverence toward God. The sin of faithless impatience. The sin of using religion to rally people around him. The sin of fearing man rather than God. The sin of people pleasing rather than God pleasing. In other words, that one act is an expression of all those things. And these keep showing themselves through his response to Samuel. First, he's going to try to blame Samuel. Do you hear that? You didn't come within the days appointed. That's how unrepentance talks. And he's going to say, and he tried to reframe his actions as devotion to God. You see that the Philistines will come down. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So even what I did was devotion to Yahweh. What I did shows how much I love him and seek his grace, his favor. He presented his actions as unavoidable. I forced myself. And offered the burnt offering. I, I had no choice. I really didn't want to, but I had to. And these are the moments where we have to slow down and just soak in that very soberly. I mean, do we see ourselves in Him? I know I do. When confronted with danger, potential for great loss, a, a humiliating or embarrassing situation, just how reflexively. It's someone else. How reflexively, no, no, you're mistaken. This is actually, I know you think it's not devotion to the Lord, but I just want to tell you it's devotion to the Lord. It's because I love God so much. That's why I actually did it. And how I'll act as if it just, I don't know where it came from. I didn't really want to. I had to. I had to. I had no choice. This was the only option. And that's so often the form that unrepentance can take. Fear of man rather than fearing God. Because even in that moment, Saul's still fearing Samuel. Fearing people. Fearing image lost. Fearing how he looks. 
as if the Lord doesn't see right into his heart and know exactly what's going on, which is where this goes next. I often say for many of us, the public relations department of our lives is severely overstaffed. And the obedience department of our lives is severely understaffed. We have lots of lawyers in here and not enough compliance officers. So that when these moments come, like the PR kicks in and we just start spinning the narrative, thinking that somehow that will make it better, rather than know it'll just delay restoration. It'll just delay reconciliation. It will just delay real heart transformation that's needed. And so we'll expend enormous amounts of energy managing our image and far less energy pursuing God and his word. And God sees through it. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice how the words Saul used to explain Saul were not the words that God used to explain Saul. And that's an important distinction. Saul says, I've sought the favor of the Lord. God calls it foolish. Saul said, offering a sacrifice. God's going to call it blatant disobedience. And that's scary to think about, right? That I have this whole set of words that I use to explain and describe myself. And when God really shows up through his word and shines light on it, does he have those same words or a completely different set of words? that he's going to use to describe it? Would he use words like wise, obedient, man after his heart? Or would he use words like done foolishly, not command of the Lord, not kept the command of the Lord? And so it may seem at first glance like this is the Lord being severe, like Saul fails once and gets, gets axed. But I think that's to read the story in a very man-centered way. Because first of all, a single act of rebellion against the Lord who is infinitely holy is a massive, massive crime. But second of all, that act of rebellion here in Saul, we're meant to see is just a symptom of something much deeper, much more comprehensive, a heart condition, a soul posture of unbelief and irreverence toward the Lord, which is the thing that he's now exposing. Because often we measure sinfulness in our lives by the ugliness of the behavior, not the condition of heart that a behavior points to. Because the behavior is always only the tip of the iceberg. Where Saul was meant to see this moment of panic, this irreverent, unbelieving act of sacrifice, this pleasing people rather than God, 
not as a misstep in his day, but an expression of his heart posture before God. He just doesn't fear God, doesn't love God, doesn't care about God's name, just his own. So that's event number one. Event number two is a sinful inaction, which is going to be a refusal to sacrifice. And this will come sometime later in 1 Samuel 15, if you want to turn over there. Where in verse 3, God's going to command Saul to strike down the Amalekites because of their ruthless treatment of Israel during their journey out of Egypt and toward the promised land centuries before. And not just because this was, okay, they hurt my people, but it was a blatant scorn of God that the Amalekites had blatantly assaulted the reputation in the name of Yahweh and what they did to the people of Yahweh. That's the point. And so he says to Saul, in, or Samuel to Saul from the Lord in verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's quite a, a command. And we could see that and go, oh, is that genocide? No. That's, what do we think is going to happen at the end of the world? What do we think is going to happen at the last judgment? You know, what this is about is the worth and the holiness of the name of Yahweh. That's why he's saying all this to Saul. Saul, this isn't about Israel. This isn't about you, firstly. This is about me. And I had vowed to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven as a statement to the whole world about his holiness and his worth. Well, Saul summoned the army, went to war, and the Lord gave the Amalekites into their hands. And then listen to what happened in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. Remember the exact words. What did God say? I will utterly blot out. Here, would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. We have to ask, despised and worthless to whom? Well, to the people. Because to God, it was all despised. To God, it was all to be destroyed. To God, it was to all be removed. To Saul and the people, only some of it was despised. To God, it was all to be destroyed, again, as a statement of his holy character, as a statement of his justice, as a statement of here's what all rebellion against God deserves. And here's what all rebellion against God will receive. Sobering, weighty, and yet true. But to Saul and the people, it was just loot. 
And so they feel free to just trim a little fat from the words of God in order to make it say what he want, they wanted it to say so that they could do what they wanted to do. And so the whole point is lost. Because now to the onlooking world, this is just Israel killing a bunch of people to get loot. This is just Israel conquering a people so they could get all their goods, all their livestock. And even personal glory and honor by taking this king as their trophy. A king that Saul now sees as subservient to him. So man's glory is what he's after. The world is what he's after. The name of God, that point, is lost. So much that God says to Samuel in verse 10, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Which is, again, not about just keeping rules for the sake of rules or checking boxes for the sake of checking boxes, but all the long commandments are summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying, this is not a man who loves me. And again, we'll see Saul is completely blind to this. In verse 12, it says he set up a monument to himself. That's how proud he is of this. Verse 13, Samuel's going to come to him. And once more, Saul's going to come out to Samuel as if everything is just great. Just hunky-dory. He's going to say, blessed be you to the Lord. He's going to bless Samuel. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, that is the definition of oblivious. And that really is the scariness of spiritual blindness. You know, physical blindness, one advantage is you know it. When you're physically blind, you know you're blind. The scariness of spiritual blindness is you're blind to the blindness. One of the first features of it is we don't see that we don't see. And that's where Saul is. He thinks he sees, but he doesn't see. How many conversations did Jesus have with the Pharisees like that? You think you see, but you don't see. Because you claim to see, your guilt remains. So rather than fearfully, faithfully, humbly, God-dependently fulfilling the words of the Lord, once again, Saul just lowers the word of God to fit what he wanted to do. He lowered the word of God to justify also just what all his buddies wanted to do. Because you know, this wasn't just his idea. There's a lot of people getting rich off this thing. And so you know, there's tons of pressure of, Saul, we don't have to kill all this, right? There's some good looking sheep. I mean, man, do you see the, that herd of cows over there? That's, that's a good looking herd. Do you see all the, the things that, oh, there's a lot of money here to be made. And now it's not, well, God's word did say we could take it all. No, it's okay. How do we shape God's word to make it okay that we do this? So tempting in life. Which is part of why the reason we want to study the word of God, soak in the word of God, saturate in the word of God, be conformed by the word of God, 
is not just for an academic exercise so that we can get right answers on a trivial test. It's so we can actually know what God says and have our hearts completely submitted to it because we believe this is what we're all capable of if we drift, if we wander. And all it takes is an honest look at the evidence. Look at verse 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In other words, the evidence of the disobedience is everywhere. I mean, Samuel's been there 15 seconds. He's like, it's actually pretty obvious that what you just said to me isn't true. Saul honors God with his lips, but his heart is far from him. And here's Saul's chance to see the problem. Here's an opportunity God is giving him to repent, to grieve, to seek grace, to seek forgiveness, and actually and be forgiven by God. There's so much mercy here. God didn't have to send Samuel. Like there could have been another sacrifice, fire from heaven right there, and Saul get burned up. But here's an opportunity he's given him. <clears throat> See the problem, comprehend his sin, turn from it, cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. But no, he's going to keep going down the road he's been going down. <clears throat> Verse 15. Where he's going to say, <clears throat> they have brought them from the Amalekites. Who's the they? All these people. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. Sounds like Aaron, doesn't it, at the base of Sinai? Where Moses is like, what did this people do to you that caused you to sin in so great a way? And Aaron's like, well, you know these people, Moses. They're rough. So there's this, there's this. They give me some gold. I threw it in this furnace, and out came this calf. I don't know how. It just appeared. And we neglect all the very specific things that we did to go from gold earrings to a golden calf. And so here's Saul. Well, yeah, these people, they spared. But you know what? But the rest we devoted to destruction. That's good enough, right? It's the people, not me. And it's for the purpose of worshiping God, not worldliness. How often do we even step back from sinful things we've said, felt, done, and yet still hold out that my intentions were pure. We'll say that, right? Well, yeah, I know I said that awful thing to you, but my intentions. When God always wants us to see, it's the thing that comes out of us that reveals our intentions. It's the thing that comes out of us that actually reveals heart condition. And Saul's like, the rest we've devoted to destruction, that's, that's good enough, Right? The real problem, he's saying, is external. My motivation is pure, and my obedience is actually complete. And therefore, God, I think, is super happy with me. That's what he's saying. 
And again, this is where we have to slow down and we have to see ourselves in that story. How often do I say, I'm not the main problem of my life? Everybody else's. My motivations are pure. My intentions are good. It, it may look wrong, but it's actually fine. And it may look as if I've stopped halfway, but my obedience to God is actually enough. And think about how the Pharisees lived in that delusion. The rich young ruler that comes and says, yeah, these I've kept from my youth. And all Jesus has to say is, well, let me just point out one thing then. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Let me just put my finger on one thing I know you love more than God. And not that that's the only thing. Let's just start there. And this is how the Lord, by the way, brings us to the foot of the cross, right? We just won't see our need until <clears throat> by his grace he helps us see the depth of the sin. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. We all need somebody to say that to us sometimes, right? Let's look at us go, you know what? Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. That's really what we need. We don't need, hey, Lord, can you stop a minute and let me tell you? No, the Lord has to go, no, you stop and let me tell you <laughs> what this is and how to see it. That's a mercy. It's a mercy that God makes us stop talking. You know, if for whatever reason you end up getting arrested for a crime and going to court, what's your defense lawyer going to say to you? Shut up. Don't say a word. Now, it may be for wrong reasons to get you out of something. Yet here with God is, no, you need to stop because your heart needs to change. Let me tell you what the Lord has said. And then, the, then Samuel's going to recount all the words of the Lord that he shared with Samuel that night, how Saul was low, how the Lord exalted him as king, how the Lord had sent him on a mission for the sake of Yahweh's name and sovereign purpose. And then in verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why then did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Again, to notice the words that God uses to explain him. You did not obey. You pounced on the spoil. It didn't just happen to you. Like, you pounced on that thing. That's how we ought to think about sin in our life, right? If somebody says, hey, what did you do there? Yeah, I pounced on that sin. That's what I did. We don't fall into it. We pounce on it. Do what was evil, to which Saul is still replying very quickly in verses 20 to 21, I have obeyed, I have gone, I have devoted, I have brought, but the people, for the sake of sacrifice, still defending, still arguing, still managing image, that's what scripture means by the fear of man brings a snare. Not only will it snare us in all kinds of sin, it will snare us in unrepentance. 
It will snare us in not grieving sin as we are. It will snare us in not running to the cross, to the grace of Christ as quickly as we should. Because we'll be so ensnared managing image, managing what people think. So again, you can see here in Saul, I mean, his whole PR department is all hands on deck at this point. And what I think we're meant to see and take away is that there's no digging ourselves out of sin. There's no line of reasoning that can talk us out of the wrath that is deserved. Because Saul illustrates the sinfulness of natural human hearts, the hopelessness of a person paying his own way, talking his own way out of it. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why God had to send his son into the world. Like God didn't need to send an instruction manual to get out of it. He needed to send a person to redeem us. A person who could live righteously in our place. A person who could go to the cross and take on wrath that we deserved and pay the penalty of that sin. A savior who on the third day is going to raise from the dead because sin can't hold him. Like if we go to the grave apart from Christ, the grave's like, yeah, you belong here. Jesus goes to the grave and the grave's like, what are you doing here? And what a statement that the grave just can't hold him. Didn't have a right to him because he was sinless. And he died because he was paying the penalty for our sin. And he was raised because the grave couldn't hold him and ascended and is seated at the right hand of God where he intercedes for us. And so now if there's anything that this part of Saul's life can teach us, it's to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. To know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To know that when the evidence is there, confess, repent, grieve, and be forgiven. And not keep playing the game that Saul's playing. This will become especially clear next week when we see just more of the heart of God revealed in his interactions with Saul. Well, we're going to pause here because I'd love us to have about 15 minutes, about 10 minutes or so probably, for those points of discussion there in your notes. And so what we'll do, similar to last semester, just divide up into groups of five or six, take those points of discussion and just, you may have time to get through one or two or all of them, but I will encourage you, make sure you get to point three. Do you see need for Christ? Do you appreciate grace and mercy of Christ? Like, make sure to end with the gospel, all right? And not just end with, I'm such a wretch, you know? Make sure to end with, you're forgiven, you're made new. So let's do that, and then in 10 minutes, I'll come back and pray for us.